Everybody doing okay? Good? Good? All right. Good, good. Glad you guys are here. So starting off, um, a new book of the Bible. If you've never been here before, this is what we do. Go through whole books of the Bible. We spent um, quite a bit of time in the book of Matthew. Finished that up a couple of weeks ago. I say quite a bit of time. I think it was 13 months or something we were in the book of Matthew. Finished that up. Doing a short book of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. If you actually have a copy of the scripture, New Testament, it's right between Ephesians and Colossians. We have a really short book uh, called Philippians, and that's what we're going to be doing. It'll only take us about a month to work through this whole thing. It's four chapters. Work through a chapter a week and get through it. Um, Really, really interesting book of the Bible. A very positive book of the Bible. It's a very challenging book of the Bible. There's there's a lot crammed into a little. And I want to give you a little bit of background. Before we actually get into the scripture, let me tell you a little bit about who wrote this book a little bit about the area that it's written to and and why he wrote this book. Just kind of a 30,000-foot view of it, okay? So not a ton of detail, but just enough to kind of know the context, if you will, okay? First, let me tell you a little bit about Paul. Now, whole books have been written on Paul, so I'm giving you just a a little snapshot of who this guy was. Um, One, he was a Jew. He was Jewish-born, but he also had Roman citizenship, which was very unique, and it offered him a lot of luxuries and, and a lot of protection that a lot of Jews wouldn't have had, which gave him the ability to travel around uh, most of the Roman Empire, start churches, spread the gospel, and it kept him out of a certain degree of trouble, if you will, okay? Very interesting. Very educated man. Paul was super intelligent, highly educated, and he was actually a Pharisee before he became a Christian. Now, if you don't know who that is, when we were in the book of Matthew, you don't know who the Pharisees are, they were the religious elite, and they hated Jesus. The reason why Jesus was crucified is the Pharisees arrested him, handed him over to the Roman, uh, um, uh, Roman government, and the Roman government had Jesus crucified. Paul was one of those guys. That's kind of an interesting thing when you talk about his conversion and that he wrote the majority of the New Testament. He was converted in AD 35. He was on the road to a, a city called Damascus. Um, Jesus shows up. Jesus had already died and resurrected knocks uh, uh, Paul literally on his butt, right? And says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul eventually gives his life to Jesus and becomes one of the greatest advocates of Jesus in the entire New Testament and all of history. Primarily, he ministered to non-Jewish people. So if you get into the Bible, there are really two kinds of people, biblically speaking, Jewish people and Gentiles. That's us, non-Jewish people, right? And so his ministry was primarily to non-Jewish people. And he did this until he was thrown in jail in Rome in 67 AD by a guy named Nero. Now, this is important. If you don't know who Caesar Nero was, uh, we often complain about our government. We say, you know, they're corrupt. And listen, I'm no fan of of government, really. And and I'm just kind of apolitical. I just I try not to get too soaked into all that stuff. But we have never experienced a government anything like Paul was living in. Let me tell you a little bit about Nero. So Nero was, was bat crap crazy, man. This guy was out of it, right? That's how Christians don't use swear words. Anyways, um, Nero was crazy, out of his mind. One of the things he did, just to show you how crazy he was, is when he was Caesar, he lit a certain portion of Rome on fire, and it says that he was up there playing musical instruments as he watched his own city burn. And the reason why he lit Rome on fire is the, the huge home that he already lived in, that the emperors would live in, wasn't big enough for him, and he wanted to build a bigger home. And that's what he did. When all the fires went out, he sent a bunch of people in to clean it up, and he built this monstrosity of a temple for himself, basically. That actually had the Senate, the Roman Senate, turned on Nero, hunted him down. He knew he was going to get caught, right? So in front of the Roman, uh, in front of the Roman Senate, Nero slit his own throat and killed himself. I mean, this guy was insane. The reason why it's important to know this is Paul is the same person who wrote in the book of Romans to respect your governing authorities. So a lot of Christians have not been super respectful of of their authority, right, in our nation. And when you go back and look at the scripture, when Paul says, respect your governing authorities, he even goes so far to say everyone who's in power is there because God allowed them to be. And he was telling us to respect people in a time when their leadership was awful, 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 awful. In fact, the same leadership, Nero, killed Peter and Paul, Paul in 68 AD, okay? So he was beheaded. Anyways, moving on. A little bit about this letter, because what we're reading today for the next four, four weeks is a letter from Paul 
to this group of Philippians, to this church in an area called Philippi. So this short letter was written while Paul was in prison. And this wasn't prison like we think of prison. This is not cable television and basketball courts. It was pretty rough prison. And he had started this church in Philippi about 10 years before he wrote this letter. And I'll show you where on the map that this is. So he started this church in kind of North Greece. He handed the church off to a guy named Epaphroditus. If you're pregnant and you're having a boy, there's a good name right there, Epaphroditus. And, and this letter was written to do a couple of different things. One, it was to thank these people because they had supported him, supported him financially because he traveled a lot. They supported him with letters of, of encouragement. They supported him with their prayers. So that was kind of one side of what this letter is meant to do. The other side is because he is a spiritual father to all these people, he's going to correct them. He's going to address some issues that they're having and basically tell them how to get back on track. Okay, but they had that kind of relationship where he could do that. Okay, so Philippi, the actual area, I'll show you a map. It was in northern Greece, and it was named after Alexander the Great's father. For any of you history buffs in here, Alexander the Great's father's name was Philip. It was named after him. It was a very heavily populated area, um, kind of a crossroads for all kinds of different colors of people and nationalities. And there was a lot of wealthy and intelligent people because of the gold trade that was in this area, a very metropolitan city. Fun fact, it was also the place of, of where more Roman soldiers had ever lost their life. There was a civil war in Rome in the first couple of centuries, and, and two Roman armies met in Philippi. A couple hundred thousand people were killed in a matter of days. So this was a very famous city during the Roman Empire, okay? So that's just a little bit of background. Now, here's where it is. If you look on this screen, of course, on your left, you have the boot, which is Italy. You have Greece in the middle, and then you have what is modern-day Turkey, but in biblical times, they called it Asia Minor, okay? Right here on the right. So these are all different places that Paul ministered to. Philippi is right up there in the top center in the middle of the Aegean Sea right there, okay? Between Greece and Turkey, just to kind of let you know in what part of the world we're talking about, all right? So with all that being said, here's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. We're gonna talk about adversity. I think we're all relatively familiar with adversity in the last year or so. Um, but we're going to talk about how God allows adversity. Sometimes God instigates adversity. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? To get our attention and to hopefully push us into better things, to get us to kind of wake up at times. So God allows adversity in the life of a Christian sometimes, in the life of a non-Christian sometimes, to get our attention, to steer us in the right direction. That's what we're going to focus on a little bit today, okay? So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. It has everything I'm going to say in it. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a Bible, New Testament between Ephesians and Colossians. If you have a smartphone, the app is super helpful. You can follow along in that. And I think we should be in pretty good shape. Cool. Everyone's good? Good? Yeah. Anyone else ready for warm weather besides me? This cold is terrible. Yes. All right. Cool. Just hate it. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, God. We thank you. God, thank you so much for this church. Lord, I love this church. God, I pray that you keep your hand on us this morning, Lord. I pray that everything we read and study, God, that it really uh, touches us, God, and, and speaks to us and sharpens us and brings us closer to you. Father, we pray not just for our church. We pray for every church in the city. Pray for the churches we work with up in New England, the churches that we work with in Africa and in South America, God, that you would bless them. We pray, God, for the nonprofits that we work with, Lord, in Slavery, Tennessee, that it's very important to us. And God, we just pray that everything we do today, that at the end of it, Lord, that it all glorifies you and honors you and brings us closer to you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to read a little bit, and then we'll go back and we'll break it down. Okay, remember, this is a letter, okay? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all you are in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in the grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense, 
and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, so this, this was a letter, I said that before, from Paul, but he's also including a guy named Timothy. Timothy was kind of Paul's protege, right? His sidekick that he was grooming up to be a great leader. Several books of the Bible written to Timothy. And so it's not just to uh, uh, the, the congregation, the saints, it's also to the overseers and the deacons. Now, these are words that we hear in church sometimes, but sometimes people don't know what they mean. When we often think of saints, we think of it more of like in a Catholic term of where you see the icons that are put on people's walls and the really interesting kind of Renaissance paintings and statues. Saints in this term simply means anyone that follows Jesus. So all of us in this room would be the saints, if you will. And so overseers would be the leader of the saints, like the pastors and the elders. And then you have the deacons, which would be the ones who would basically go out and do community service. They're the one feeding the poor, taking care of the widows, helping out the homeless, doing those kinds of things. Those were the deacons of the church, kind of the physical things that the church would do. Okay, So there's these different levels, if you will. And Paul had first started preaching to this group of people, again, 10 years ago. And in that 10-year span, this group of people, they prayed for him. They helped him financially. They sent him encouraging letters. And this consistency and faithfulness of the congregation, that brought Paul, as he says, a lot of joy because it showed that they were mature in their faith. Now, listen, I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but the first thing I thought of was this. In our culture nowadays, if someone stays at the same church for 10 years, it's like we think it's like another miracle, right? Because what happens in our culture is, is someday we sit here and we're like, I just don't like this church anymore. I'm going to go to place X, right? Or someone says something you don't like, or you know, you just, this season is over. I hate that terminology. And someone will go somewhere else. And in this day, people didn't have the luxury of jumping over to the church on the other side of the street because they didn't like something in theirs. They had to be faithful to that congregation. They had to work out their problems versus running from them all the time. And so Paul sees this faithfulness and he's like, man, this is, this is great. This brings me great joy. And so Paul also says something very important. He says, God has started something really good in you because of your obedience, because of your love, because of your faithfulness. God is doing something. And this is very important to, to, to us today. Paul says, if God has started something good in you, he's going to complete something good in you. He's not going to let you fail. As long as we're faithful to God, God's going to be faithful to us. But what we have a tendency to do, I've done it, man is we'll get to a certain place to where maybe the next step is not 100% clear, and we're like, God, what the heck? Why'd you bring me this far? And we start to have these trust issues with God, and Paul reminds us that, listen, God doesn't bring us anywhere just for us to fail. He wants us to, to, to see that completed through. In fact, the Bible says it's better to finish something than to start something. So if God starts a work in you, He's not going to take you halfway and then just get bored with it. He's going to take you all the way to completion as long as we keep trusting him, as long as we're faithful to him. And so what happens is, is over time, there should be a reputation of how Jesus operates that is built up in us. So listen, as we pray and we start to see God do things in our life, as we read the word of God and we start to see that these principles work, as we attend church, as we get plugged in, right? We start to think and act and, and respond more like God. And the fancy church word for that, it's a biblical word too, is sanctification. And all that means is over time, we start to be set apart for God to do something with us. And the more we're sanctified, the more we trust God in every aspect of our life. The closer we get to him, the more we trust him. And this reputation builds up. Let me tell you. When it comes to finances, my wife and I have never made a ton of money or anything like that. We have never worried about our finances. Not because I'm rich or my wife doesn't even work. She's a stay-at-home mom. But let me take that back. She works. She does not get paid for it, right? We'll edit that out later. Okay, yes. There's no tomatoes or 
Anything? Okay, all right, gotcha. <laughs> Boy, I'm sweating right now. Anyways, <laughs> we have never worried about money, not because we always had an excess of money, but because we've always been faithful to God with our money. And, and God has built up a reputation with us. There have been times when we had nothing, but we gave the way we should. We were benevolent and we gave to the church what we should. And just miraculously, God would always make sure we had food on the table, that, that our bills were paid, things like that would happen. And so that reputation is built up in me. And, but, but it's like that with all kinds of things. I don't worry about my kids because we're raising our kids in the way of the Lord. And the Bible says if we raise them in the way of the Lord, so they're going to they're stick with that. So we don't, have, we don't worry about our kids. We don't worry about our marriage because as long as we're being faithful and trusting God with those things, right, he's going to see us through and that reputation is built. Paul continues and says, I pray that you continue to grow in your knowledge and your discernment. Now, if you get into the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, it talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And two of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are the gift of knowledge, the ability to retain what that word teaches, and the gift of discernment, which is the ability to know what is right and wrong. And some of you guys, you have the gift of discernment, but maybe you've never been able to pinpoint it. It's that feeling when you go into some place and you feel that thing in your gut say, you shouldn't be here. This is bad. I shouldn't be at this place, right? It's when you do something and maybe you feel like that guilt because the Holy Spirit in you has gotten into a situation. You've gotten into a situation that the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to be in. It's knowing that there are some things we shouldn't listen to, some things we shouldn't subject our children to. It's things like that, that gift of discernment. And these tools that God gives us, that Paul says we should seek after these tools, they help us build our relationship with God better and they help us build our relationship with other people better. So here's what happens. Because of this sanctification process, because we keep evolving to be more and more like Jesus, as we grow in our faith and as we just grow in age, right, hopefully growing closer to Christ, we should be making better choices as we get older, as we mature in our faith. Not that we're ever going to be perfect, but the Christian can live in a manner that is above reproach, the Bible says, pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's what we should be aspiring to. And it's not because we're good. It's because a good God dwells in us, that we can produce good things, that we can live in a way that is honorable, right? In a way that is pure and blameless. And so Paul tells us to pursue that, to keep working towards that. So what we learn in this first part is we have to ask ourselves the question, what about my character? So the fruit of righteousness is our, our, our character. It is our moral qualities. And where do we find the bar for how we should live morally? Right here, right? From the word of God, this is the standard of what is good and evil. Now, I was watching a documentary. I watch a lot of really weird documentaries. And, and, and I was watching this documentary called uh, Losing My Religion. And it's about uh, a certain initiative called The Clergy Project. It was started by a group of atheists, and what it's for, this sounds nuts, is apparently there's a ton of people that work in the clergy or work as pastors who are closet atheists. And so there's a, a group led by a really happy atheist named Richard Dawkins, and he puts up a bunch of money for people who want to come out of living in the closet as an atheist. And it's interesting, at one point in this documentary, <laughs> Richard Dawkins, who just hates everybody, right? He just, anyone that's associated with any kind of religion, he just thinks you're an idiot. He teaches at Oxford, and he's just a miserable individual. And when he's up there, he says, I believe religion is the great evil of the world. And my first impulse was, it's fascinating. If there is no standard for what is good or bad, how can you say that anything is evil? right? So there's kind of this double standard there. And the reason we know, or as Christians, what is right and what is wrong is we have to believe in a higher power that sets the standard for good things and bad things. But if that higher power doesn't exist, what is evil? What is good? No one has the ability to say. But what we need to be asking ourselves is this. As time goes on, am I living differently because of my relationship with Jesus? Is my marriage getting better as time goes on? Is my, am I reading the Bible more? Am I speaking to God more? Am I loving people more? Have my actions and my character grown closer to that of God's over time or not? And if not, there's a problem there. Something's amiss, right? Okay, next part. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me 
is actually advanced the gospel. So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul was writing this letter while imprisoned. I've said that several times now. When in prison, because he could not be out starting churches and sharing the gospel, it pushed other people to go out and spread the gospel and start churches. So others had to step up to the plate. So what Paul's first point right here was this. The Roman government thought they could stop the gospel, but no government can stop the gospel. No worldly institution can stop the spread of the truth. They try to do it in communist China right now, and Christianity is absolutely exploding there. It happened in the Roman Empire. It always happens. There is no suppression of the gospel. It cannot be stopped. No, no worldly institution can stop it. So Paul wanted the people to know they thought they could throw me in prison and stop the spread. Now it's spreading more than ever, right? It's going out, and it's reaching even more people. And he says it's reaching people from the imperial guards, the, the kind of top of the food chain, all the way down to the commoners. So the imperial guards were hearing that, that Paul was in, in prison because of his faith. The commoners out in the marketplace and walking the streets were hearing that, that Paul was imprisoned because of his faith. And while they know that Paul is in prison because of his faith, you have all these new people going out and spreading the gospel fearlessly, it says. But what we see is the love, the character, and the boldness of Christians. It reaches people all the way from the top, right, that work for the government, all the way to the most common people. And so that's our mission, right, is that we're to go out and not just focus on the poor and impoverished. We're, man, we, we want the rich saved too. We want people who are diametrically opposed to us saved. We want people of both political parties saved. We want people of all colors and nationalities saved. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. Now, what they do with it is between them and God, but it is our job to at least go present it to every kind of person. And that's what was happening. And so Paul says, look, there's a lot of people who have started to spread the gospel because I'm in prison, and they have good motives. They love Jesus. They love me. They love the gospel. And then Paul said there's a lot of people who are going out there and starting churches and spreading the gospel for selfish gain. They're doing it because it makes them money. They're doing it because it makes them popular. Now, we see this a lot today, don't we? I bet right now, if you thought right now of someone that you think is doing it for the wrong reasons, I bet you can think of some. I can think of some right now in my mind. Here's the trick, though. Here's what Paul says that, that really convicts me. Because you can turn on those preachers, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning on the TV, lay your hands on the screen, send us $1,000, sow a seed, right? All this prosperity bull crap that we hear. And so you hear that stuff, and it's very easy to just point a finger and, and, and really be angry about it. And Paul says, listen, even if it's by, by bad motives, if people are sharing Jesus, I rejoice in that. And that really convicted me. So even if some have bad motives, if the gospel is being spoken, it still liberates. And that man or woman that is preaching things and not living the way they're preaching, they'll have to answer for that. Rest assured about that, okay? But if the gospel's being spread, it's being spread. I always threaten you guys with hot pink. It's coming. Here it comes. <laughs> I finally did it. So this is the week. I'm going to use the hot pink. So look at the verbiage of this part that I just read. Look at the verbiage of this whole chapter. Different synonyms for joy and excitement and encouragement. Man, you can tell that Paul is pumped, and he's in prison. He, not only is Paul in prison, 
He's imprisoned by the most hostile, hedonistic government that has probably ever existed. Listen, not just was Nero crazy and insane and awful. Man, most of the Roman, uh, Ro most of the Roman senators, it was very commonplace for them to have prepubescent boys that they would rape over and over and over again. It was basically kind of like a perk to being a senator back in the Roman times. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, there's a part when one of the senators is getting arrested and there's a bunch of young boys with makeup on doing gardening work along the sides. That's what that represents. It was commonplace. This was a hedonistic, terrible government. You know what's fascinating about that? Man, everyone needs to listen to this. Listen to this on TV land. This is important. All throughout the book of Philippians, even though he is under the oppression of a terrible government, Paul doesn't waste his time getting involved in politics. He focuses on the gospel. Let me say, hold on, because I know people hate that. It wasn't about tearing down the president. It wasn't about saying awful things. It wasn't posting a 666 on Donald Trump's head. It wasn't any of that. It was, if you want to change things, tell people about Christ. If you want to see things get better, share the gospel of Jesus. It's not about taking shots at the government. Let me take it a step further. In the early church back in this time, when they would plant churches, they had a thing called the Didache, which was basically like how services were ran. And when they would do services back at this time, they would start off almost every single worship service by praying for Caesar and his family and all of the governing officials. Now, if I were to get up here during the Trump era and say, God bless Donald Trump, protect him. Boy, half the church would leave. And then Biden gets elected. And I said, God bless Joe Biden. The other half of the church would leave. And what's interesting is, it has been the nature of Christianity since the beginning of this faith that they always pray regardless of who's in office. They pray blessings over them and not cursings. That has always been how the Christians have functioned until about 30 years ago. That's how it's always been. And so we need to make sure that we understand that politics are not the hope of humanity. Jesus Christ is the hope of humanity. And we need to make sure that we use our time wisely. And all the times that I saw Christians arguing politics on Facebook this year, how many people could you have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with in that time? How many lives would have changed? How many eternities would have been altered? But instead, we argued over social media. There it was. No more hot pink. All right. So Paul says, here's my eager expectation. Here's my hope. And he says, I, I pray, I hope, He's talking about himself, that when times get tougher, that I'll have the courage to, to stick to my guns. That's what Paul says. Paul's about to be beheaded, and he knows that that's probably coming. And so he says, I pray that at the end, whether if I live or I die, that I honor God in everything I do. You know what that should cause us to do is we should take a step back as believers, and we should say, listen, if I had to go to prison for my faith, would I? If, if, if I had to sacrifice my comforts in this life, would I? If I had to lay my life down for my faith, would I? Let me, we've already gone there and you're already here. So I remember in the middle of all this mask stuff getting blown out of proportion. Everyone talking about masks and it became this very divisive issue. And so many Christians that I had heard for years say, I would do anything for Jesus, anything for the church, but I'm not going to wear that mask because no one's going to tell me what to do. And I would say, hmm, that doesn't sound like Jesus. If you really care about those around you, if the church is so important to you, whether you think the masks do anything or not, it's a question of do you love your fellow man enough to respect their thoughts and their ideas? And so we had so many people who say, I, I would die for Jesus, but I'm not going to sacrifice my rights. No one can take my rights. And we worship, a, we worship a Savior that laid down all of his rights for us to die for our sin and to shed his blood. The creator of the universe let his own creation kill him. So sometimes we need to step back and say, how much would I really give up for the kingdom of God? All right, that wasn't hot pink. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have taken it that far. Next part. For me, and you guys are like, Philippians was supposed to be a happy book, Corey. What are we doing? Right? <laughs> for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Now, verse 21 may be your thesis statement for the book of Philippians. It's probably the most famous one. To live as Christ, to die as gain. It is very short, it's very pithy, but it's an extremely profound statement. It basically means that the, the source of all life and what makes life worth living is our relationship with Jesus. And if we live our life for Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of death because when we die, we just go on to paradise, right? So to live is Christ. He's a reason for living. And when we die, it's gain because we get to literally be with Jesus in eternity forever. Now, when Paul is talking about this, he's not suicidal. Some theologians believe that, and I think that's crazy. He's not suicidal. He's just talking about personal preference. He's like, man, if I had the choice, can I keep on like fighting and starting churches and doing everything here? Or can I just skip all this and just go be in paradise? Now, listen, persecution in Paul's day was not like losing friends on Facebook. Persecution in Paul's day was going from town to town, getting beat up so bad. The Bible even says that sometimes they thought Paul was dead. They would beat him so bad. And he would do that all over the place. So for him to be in prison, being like, man, I'd like to go home. You kind of understand why. He was probably missing teeth, probably had scars all over him, probably walked with a limp, probably didn't have full mobility in his arms because he had been so beat up. But what we see from his like musing of death, right? Should I live or should I die? What we see is, is he understands, Paul understands, and we need to understand this too, that our life has to be used wisely. It has to be used for the work of the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. That's why you and I are here to honor God and how we live and to prepare ourselves for our eternity. And so Paul says, I'm persuaded because I trust that God wants me here because I wouldn't still be breathing if God didn't want me here. Listen, the reason why all of you are breathing right now is because God has something for you to do. Every single one of you. And if God didn't have anything for you to do, you'd be dead because you'd be no use in this life anymore. So Paul understood the mind of Jesus. I'm alive because Jesus wants me alive. And because I'm alive, I got to keep working for the kingdom. We've got to keep seeing progress. We've got to keep pushing more people into a deeper relationship with Jesus because it is only that progress of getting closer to Jesus that we find contentment, even contentment when you are in prison, even contentment when you're beaten for your faith. There's still joy. There's still peace. And Paul knew the only way that we have that joy and that peace, though, is if we're progressing in our faith. We're getting closer and closer to Jesus, okay? Here's my favorite part. It's the next part. He says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened by any of your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now you hear that I have. So here's the thing. If you're in this room, and if you're not a Christian, I just, I, I want to be very upfront with you. But if you are a Christian in this room, when we become believers, Jesus calls us to take a step up. We live at a higher standard. Doesn't mean that we're better than anyone else. But when we understand that we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That God gave his only son for us, that should push us to live at a standard that is worthy of what God has done for us. He has paid much for us. Let's live a life that understands our value. How do we do that? We do that by following the commands of Jesus. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So we need to do what the Bible tells us to do. The only way to know what to do is we have to read our Bible. We need to be praying. We need to be communicating with Jesus, talking with Jesus. That's how we live a life worthy of the gospel. We need to love other people. The Bible says you'll be known as followers of Christ by how you love people. We need to love people. We need to build relationships with people. We need to help those that are less fortunate than us. And listen, just our day-to-day -day character. 
In a nutshell, Christians shouldn't be jerks. You should be a nice person. You should treat people with respect. You should hold the door open for people. You should, you should do your best to lift other people up and encourage other people and treat people in the way, I would say, even better than the way we would expect to be treated. Our character, that's how we live lives, worthy of the sacrifice of Christ. And Paul says, I would love to hear that you're all together in this, that you're standing firm, one spirit, one accord, right? That we should strive to do this. Our church, we strive to do this. I have a great relationship with David Young over at North Boulevard Church of Christ. It's a very different kind of church than us. I have a great relationship with Brady Cooper over at New Vision. Great church, a little different than us. I have a great relationship with Father Chris Finley over at St. Patrick's Anglican Church. Very, very different from us. I even found out, uh, Savut sent me a picture. We, we just installed a huge sound system, and uh, not a huge sound system, but a really nice sound system and, and some audio-visual stuff for, for St. Patrick's. We just did it just to, wanted to bless him, and he's a good friend. And uh, Savut was over there helping a little bit, and he sent me a picture. There's a picture of me in the hallway at St. Patrick's Anglican Church because Chris and I are friends, and it was a picture from when I went and saw him become the rector, the pastor. I went to their service and, and watched him get installed, and there's a picture of me in St. Patrick's Anglican Church. I think the church should try to do that. Um, and the reason why we do that, and we can do that, is even though we might have minor differences, our liturgy looks very different than St. Patrick's. We have music, and North Boulevard doesn't have music. Things like that, those are minor differences. We should be able to get past those and focus on the greater thing, which is making disciples of Jesus. So we should be united in that way. The problem comes, though, when there is a lot of self-professing Christians and even whole denominations and churches that say they follow Jesus, but they have disregarded very important principles in this book. And listen, this is going to sound harsh. We cannot partner with people like that. Uh, Paul says it in the book of Corinthians. He says, if one claims to be a Christian but doesn't follow these things, we're not even allowed to eat dinner with those people, it says. It doesn't mean with non-believers. It says the people that profess the faith but really don't believe in it, we cannot partner with people like that. So we should strive to have unity, but unfortunately, when there's heresy mixed in, we cannot be partners with that. And so Christians have two privileges, Paul says, and one of them is not comfort, ease, or prosperity in the way that, that America knows prosperity. The two privileges we have as Christians are to believe in Jesus and to suffer for Jesus. Well, that doesn't sound like American Christianity. To suffer for Christ is to have a closer connection with Christ. To suffer with Christ, we start to understand how he felt. Christ laid down his life for people, sometimes people that didn't even care, lots of times for people that didn't care. And we are called to do the same thing. Jesus forfeited his rights. So many times in the last year, I heard Christians go, well, it's my right. Well, sometimes as Christians, we willingly lay down our rights. Jesus laid down his rights, our comforts. And eventually Jesus laid down his life and he's going to ask us to do the same thing. Not only that, he's going to ask us to do it with joy because we suffer for his kingdom. And that's only possible when we have a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. We can only do these things if we are full of the Holy Spirit, have a lot of the Holy Spirit in us, or we just naturally are not going to do these things. We live in a very self-centered, individualistic culture. And Christians are not called to live like that. We're not called to live like that. We are called to, the Bible says, outdo each other with honor. Give more away than we ever get. To love in ways that people might never love us back. That's why Jesus said crazy stuff like, Love those that hate you and pray for those that persecute you and give people your shoes when they try to steal your shirt. It's crazy stuff. But that's the kingdom of God. That's how much he loves us. And we're to do that with people around us. So what it boils down to, we're gonna talk about three things here and I'm gonna end. We're gonna talk about the character of Christians, us being citizens of heaven, and then we're gonna talk about adversity. So the character of a Christian, that's all of us in this room that claim to be followers of Jesus. When people see us, even if they don't know where it comes from, our character should be marked by love. Love, love, love. That doesn't mean that we enable bad behavior. It doesn't mean that we condone sinful actions. It doesn't mean that we relent on our beliefs, but we love people. We genuinely want what's best for people. That we have joy. That we have peace. Patience. 
that we are gentle people, kind people, faithful people, goodness, self-control. These are the things that should mark all of us in this room that claim to be a follower of Jesus. Now listen, there are going to be times when we don't do all this perfectly. That's when we go back to God and say, God, I'm struggling with self-control. All the men in here are like patience, right? Don't have it. God, give me patience. I need help with patience. Lord, I'm not always gentle, not always kind. I don't always love people around me. But these are the fruit. This is the fruit that Christians should be producing. And though we're going to sometimes make make mistakes in this, as we grow in our relationship with God, we will think and act more like him. That's what the word repentance means by definition. It's not just to say, I'm sorry. Repentance by definition is to change the way you think and act. That we start looking more like God, thinking more like God, responding more like God, looking at other people the way God looks at other people. And in this, we need to pursue the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the only gift of the Holy Spirit that I can think of, I might be wrong, if I am, send me an email. The only, the only gift of the Spirit that I, I, I think the Bible says we receive every time we ask for it is wisdom. That means that every single one of you, every single time you pray, when you get to the part about praying for yourself, ask God to make you wise. God, give me wisdom. If you go back in the Old Testament, that's where Solomon hit a home run, right? God shows up, Solomon, what do you want? You can have anything you want. It's funny, we should do that. We should, we should go poll a bunch of people, right? Hey, if you could have one thing, what would it be? Billion dollars? I'd be famous, I'd be this, I'd be that. Solomon goes, make me wise. And God goes, bingo, that's it. He became the wisest man that ever lived, right? The Bible tells us that we can have wisdom if we ask for it. We should be seeking knowledge. We should be seeking the ability to discern because that world is confusing out there. You have so many conflicting things coming towards you. And without the discernment of God, we don't know which road to take sometimes. Man, if you're a parent in here, you need discernment. You need wisdom, right? That's the character of a Christian. And here, here's the thing is we're citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we belong to something bigger than this world. But you have to know that this world, the road that we walk now can be arduous. It is difficult. If you're not a believer in here, again, I just want to be straightforward and honest with you. Being a Christian is not easy. If it were easy, there would be more Christians in the United States. It's not easy. It's arduous. But the thing is, is we have an advocate. We have someone with us. God is with us. And as long as we have a relationship with God, we can have peace regardless of the chaos that is in the world right now. So as citizens of heaven, we have to be dedicated to God. We have to be dedicated to the principles of this book. We have to understand that our only hope relies, it falls on the teachings of this book. This is so important. This is the only hope for us. It's not a political change. It's not an economic change. It's not it, it, all the different things that people throw at us, right? It's, it's here. It is in these principles. And as citizens of heaven, this is what we lean back on. This is what we fall back on. Listen, this man, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, guys, and, and I'm, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir sometimes. But as citizens of heaven, we cannot live in fear or hatred of governments, cultures, societies, or whatever the worldly institutions are. Listen, let me tell you this. Every time there's an election cycle, it doesn't matter who gets elected, a Republican or a Democrat, half the nation is terrified, right? They're scared to death. Let me say this to you. I'm not saying this in any kind of arrogance or anything like this. It is not your design. God has not created you to live in fear. The Bible says, Fear is not a spirit given to us by God. It's not from God, that kind of fear. Jesus looked at people and said, do not fear those that can hurt your body. Fear the one that can cast your soul into hell. That doesn't mean we don't honor and respect governing authorities, but you have no one to be afraid of. The Christian should be afraid of no human because ultimately we answer to the Lord. Everyone loves that. Here's the other side of it. We are not to hate any governing authorities or cultures either. The Christian is not to hate the Muslim. The Christian is not to hate the LGBTQ community. The Christian is not to hate the Republicans or the Democrats. The Christians are to love and respect all people. doesn't mean we agree with everything they do. But we are to be praying for their well-being. 
Corey, you don't know how evil Joe Biden is. Well, if he's as evil as you think he is, you should be praying for him more than you prayed for Donald Trump. I hope all the Christians that put up the Facebook pictures of Jesus hugging Donald Trump do the same amount of praying for this president. I'm not taking a political stance, guys. I'm talking about hypocrisy. I'm talking about a double standard. I'm talking about if we're going to pray for our leadership, we need to pray for the leadership whether we like them or not because that honors God, Romans 13, because it's what we're supposed to do. I'm not telling you to agree with Muslims or Buddhists or Baha'i or whatever religions out there, but I'm saying if we do not pray for them, if we do not build relationships with them, they have no hope. They don't get the answers. We are the light. And if we think everything is out there is dark, we are, we are designed to go out into that darkness, to bring light to that. This book isn't our only hope. It's their only hope too. And they need to know the principles that are in this. What it does is it makes us have to step back and really check our hearts. I say I love people, but when it comes to people that are different from me, sometimes I really don't. And we need to step back and really evaluate that. Listen, we are citizens of heaven. We're not wrapped up in the things of this world, right? At least we shouldn't be. We should not fear anything in this world or hate anything in this world. We live in a government that is greater than that, better than that. Now, here's the last thing. I think a lot of us have gotten a taste for adversity in the last year or so. Let me tell you this. The state of the world, the state of the world around you, because the world feeds, the news channels feed off chaos and dissension and division. They feed on anger and they, they love that, right? That's what the world does. It feeds on chaos. But however chaotic the world gets, it should not affect the fruit of the Spirit bubbling up out of the Christian. Because love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and self-control and all those things are not contingent on the climate of the world. It is contingent on my relationship with my Creator. What that means is this. Well, Corey, country's going to hell. You should still have joy. Well, everything's falling apart. You should still have fulfillment and contentment because we do not get our happiness from the world. We get our contentment, something deeper than happiness. Happiness is contingent on the circumstances. God doesn't promise us that. God promises us joy and contentment, which is not contingent on the world around us, but on our relationship with the source of peace and joy and love and kindness so I don't care how bad things get. That should not dictate your joy. It should not dictate your love. It should not dictate your peace. You're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. Let me take it a step further. It is in times of the most adversity that God seems to do his greatest work in us. It is in the middle of that pressure for those who are humble enough to see it, it is in the middle of that pressure that we can have a deeper understanding of God, deeper understanding of who we are in our relation to God, a deeper love for humanity. Let me give you an example, right? Look at King David. When he wrote the book of Psalms, he was running for his life, living in, ca uh, in caves. It was when he was in his most adverse times that he was closer to God than he had ever been. You know when David fell? When he was in his comfortable mansion when he was king and he looked out over the different rooftops and he saw a beautiful naked woman who was married to another man, killed him, slept with her, right? And that was when he was in his easy stage of life. Isn't that like us? And that, has that not been our nation for the last 60 years? Living in excess and comfortable living and having all the comforts, never, never having to depend on a God because we have everything else. And maybe God is shaking us up a little bit to say, hey, hello, I think you forgot about me over here. Have we not seen in the last year that all the things that the world creates have just fallen? That they come up short? Have we not seen that? Have we not been a witness to that? So on a macro level, I think God is kind of shaking the world right now saying, there's a better way. In the book of Revelation, he's going to do it again, literally shake the world. And not because he hates us, because he's doing everything he can 
to get us to look up. So that's from a macro level. On a micro level, let me talk about us. In times where we go through adversity, finances, marriage things, things at work, whatever the case may be, instead of us cursing God, instead of us blaming everybody else, right? Instead of us laying blame on everyone else for ruining their lives, maybe in those moments we should hit our knees and say, God, what are you trying to teach me right now? God, what are you trying to bring out of me? Is there a sin that I need to repent of? Is there an action that I need to change? Or maybe I'm doing everything right and you're just trying to strengthen me. Maybe in this suffering, I can learn to identify with you more. Maybe I can appreciate our relationship more. Maybe I can start to have more empathy towards others through this. God, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? It's okay to ask God questions. I hope you guys know that. Lord, show me what you're doing. Teach me. But it is through this adversity where historically the church has grown the most. It's where Christianity has thrived the strongest is when there's opposition because God really shows up in those times. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Hey, listen, if you're in this room and, and maybe you're not a believer, if you have any questions, anything you'd like to ask, Pastor Mike is up here on my right, your left. Um, there's no questions that are out of bounds. You're not gonna catch us off guard. You're not gonna make us feel uncomfortable. If you have any questions, please come up here and talk to Pastor Mike. If you have anything you need prayer for on both sides of the stage, there's men and women, they'd love to pray with you. And then the last thing is you have communion in your hands. That communion reminds us of the body and blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. It's a reminder that God has never left us. He's never forsaken us. It's a reminder that God loves you very, very, very much, that you're valued. And because of that blood that was shed for us, we, we can be citizens of heaven. We can have joy and contentment regardless of what's happening around us. That's only because of Jesus. All of you can take that, and as long as you ask God to forgive you of your sins, I also want to pray for you. I want to pray for everyone in this room, everyone watching online. Father, Lord, right now, I just want to pray for, for everyone who's watching God online, everyone who's listening in this room. I pray for every single marriage that's represented, Lord, that you would bless that relationship. God, I pray for every single person, Lord, that you would give them uh, the strength, God, to, to live a pure life and to wait for the right person that you send them, God. I want to pray for all the parents in this room, God, that, that you would give them the wisdom to lead their children well, that you give the children, God, the humility to listen to their parents, God, and to be respectful. We pray, God, for the employers of this room and for leaders in this room, God, for students in this room. We just pray, Lord, that we can humbly submit to you, that we can go back to your principles and come hell, come high water, come whatever, Lord. As long as we're standing on you, Father, we'll be okay. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys very much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.